in the house. Let me hear your bark. Let me see your bite. Let me see your scars. You know what we about. Come see us in the yard. Hello and welcome to the third or fourth most depressive, upsetting, morose Husky football podcast on the internet. I am Andrew Berg and my usual co-host, Gaby Lucas, wisely found something else to do tonight. So joined by our editor-in-chief, the uh, Don James to my Jim Lambright, Max Fruman. Max, have you recovered at all from Saturday yet? Uh, I am recovered in so far as I found something else to have to recover from in that I was at a wedding on Sunday night at which I may or may not have uh, indulged in certain beverages. Uh, and therefore I had, I had a distraction, which was good and very, very badly needed. I mean, in a perverse way that ended up being exactly the right time to not be around for a game that you would otherwise really want to be around for like going in, that seemed like a terrible timing for a wedding and in retrospect it was phenomenal i am definitely still team hashtag cancel fall weddings however yeah. uh the benefit of being at an out-of-town wedding during that weekend was uh being two hours ahead meant that when the game ended it was actually basically a reasonable bedtime and i could just say screw it i'm turning everything off and gonna try to go to sleep and then of course stared at the ceiling for two and a half hours because uh, my mind would not keep playing it over and over, <laughs> but theoretically it was, it was a great environment to, to behold that game at the true by Hilton in Duluth, Minnesota. I, I did go to the game. So as we talked through it a little bit, I apologize if there's anything in the finer points that I just missed. I, I didn't realize, for example, that Jalen Polk didn't come back in after the first, first catch until I heard Jimmy Lake mention in his press conference that he had emergency surgery just because I was, you know, in the stands and I figured yeah. they just didn't throw back to him, but uh, things like that. I, this was not the week where I went back and watched the recording afterwards for obvious reasons. So I, I don't want to spend this whole time uh, talking about the, you know, everything that went wrong, the worst case possible against Montana on Saturday, but I do want to talk a little bit about the disconnect between what we were, what we expected, but also what we were told to expect going in and then what we saw. So Jimmy Lake spent most of the fall talking about how much more explosive the offense was and, you know, other coaches and many of the players who I assume are getting this messaging from their head coach. They talked up Dylan Morris's intelligence, his poise, specifically how he's improved at reading defenses, how he is extremely good at blitz pickup. And, and above all, Everyone on the coaching staff raved about the offensive line. I think a week before the game, Jimmy Lake said it was something like undoubtedly the best offensive line in the conference. So that leads me to two possible conclusions. Either Jimmy Lake said all these things and didn't believe them and was just advertising and knew this was coming, or he was severely delusional because that wasn't the best offensive line in the conference. That performance on Saturday had to be the worst offensive line performance by a Pac-12 team in the conference. So so what do you think caused this disconnect between the advertisement for this team and the reality of what we saw on the field? Well, you're forgetting option number three, which is that Montana secretly has the greatest defensive line in the history of football. Fair. 
yeah, which did is also that. an option. Uh, can't can't discount that one. Uh, everything pointed to the fact that what Jimmy Lake said was true. This is a team that is returning literally everyone in their offensive line room from a group that, although they gave up plenty of pressures last year, they technically still did not give up a legitimate sack where a defender came through and tackled Dylan Morris in the backfield. It, it really gave no indication, I'm sure, to the coaches either that this wasn't going to be a good offensive line. Uh, I think there probably are the fact that they also hyped up a lot of the pass rushers uh, during this time, maybe by virtue of them beating said offensive line, uh, that we, we may be figuring out the reason is that they actually, neither one is very good. And when you start with the base assumption that one of those units is good, and then the other one beats that one, I must think, hey, they're actually both pretty good. Or the alternative is you badly misjudged it. There's, there's really no... I mean, I, I would not have expected Jimmy Lake to come out and say, hey, I don't think this offensive line is going to live up to everyone's expectations. But you were correct that the praise was so effusive and it came from basically everyone that it just doesn't seem like he would go to that point and set himself up for looking so foolish if he didn't truly believe that the line was going to be a strength of this team. But Obviously, it's it's his job to know whether or not that's going to be the case, and it just wasn't, which, as you mentioned, we, we now have the option of either Jimmy Lake was intentionally misleading everyone to try to cause hype that he knew wasn't going to be warranted, or he just didn't know enough to know that the, the unit wasn't going to live up to expectations. Uh, and unfortunately, it's probably more of the latter. Actually, I don't know if it's unfortunate. They're both pretty bad. I can't really pick which one is a... It's or worse, but I, it just doesn't really, none of it computes, which uh, is the reason why we're all so shell-shocked because this is a team that by all accounts, every metric that we use to judge team performance, whether it be an advanced metric, returning starters, every element of it pointed to that this was going to be a strong unit and it was going to be a strong offense. And in your intro, when you mentioned all of those elements, Explosiveness is the one that I'll give a pass on. Obviously, being down our top four receivers after the first drive of the game, I wouldn't have necessarily expected us to be all that explosive uh, with everybody out there unless Giles Jackson was able to get a catch and run and, and make a big play in space. But you absolutely have to have your offensive line dominate in that circumstance, even if Montana's committing bodies to it and is ready for it. You just can't. Just can't let that happen. Yeah, I, I I think we talked about that. I think we we all wrote about it in various ways and talked about it in advance of the game. I think the little game preview that I wrote up, just watching the little bit of tape we had on the Montana defense, they're solid. I mean, they certainly. I think Gaby wrote the defensive preview that talked about how how well their linebackers perform as a unit, not just individually freelancing, but knowing where each other are and kind of picking each other up. And it would make sense that something like that would perform reasonably well early in the game. But when you're playing against a bigger, stronger, and faster offensive line would wear down over the course of the game. We kind of saw the opposite. The offense wore down over the course of the game uh, in the post-game comments, or maybe it was in his press conference. Jimmy Lake mentioned that a lot of the struggles for Morris 
he uh, ascribed to Morris getting knocked around so much. You know, how many times he was sacked and hit and pressured in the game it was very high, including a couple of late hits, which and a couple more that could have been called, uh, frankly. But, you know, I don't think the game turned on that, but it may have turned on the number of hits he took and how little protection he got and, and seemingly the effect that that had on his ability to deliver passes accurately as the game went on. All three of his interceptions were bad throws, like severely behind the intended target. There were numerous other throws that were well behind the target. Even some of his completions were so low or offline that it kind of took the the receiver out of the uh, play to be able to get yards after catch uh, in making it. So I guess, you know, it does kind of go back to the offensive line play, which, you know, you mentioned that last year in the four game sample, there wasn't a lot of evidence of poor pass protection. I think, you know, there were probably more critiques to be levied in, in run blocking. We didn't really have the mauling offensive line uh, and that did hurt us at times, but going back to 2019, the last full season, this overload blitz problem was an issue. Uh, The Colorado game was basically lost in that uh, arena. Both the Stanford and Cal games really had trouble with blitzes. And it seemed like it was specifically the offensive line having trouble kind of picking up an overloaded blitz on one side or the other. If they brought not just, you know, five or six guys, but four of them on one side of the line and drop somebody else in the zone, they, it was, there was no answer to it. Like we weren't keeping enough backs into block tight ends. weren't doing enough, whatever. Why are we continuing to have the same problem? I mean, this is a new uh, Scott Hoff is still there, but we have a new offensive coordinator. We have a new head coach. Uh, what is there something in the blocking scheme? Is there something in the approach that's going to keep causing this to be a problem? I'm not going to pretend to be an offensive line X's and O's uh, genius on this, but I mean, at this point, you kind of have to assume it's a feature, not a bug. This is something that we've seen repeatedly uh, with this staff and under multiple offensive coordinators with Scott Huff. And yeah, it, it definitely seems like it's something that is not being either adequately taught or it's not something that the scheme is designed to be able to handle and that teams are going to be able to exploit. Uh, you mentioned, you know, a lot of this is on the overload blitz in terms of side and, and this doesn't speak to it directly, but from some of the data from sports and post solutions from this, from this last game, Montana went with five plus rushers on 16 UW dropbacks. And that included all three of their sacks. And when Morris got rid of the ball, he was five of 13 for 42 yards. So averaging just over three yards per attempt and a completion percentage around 40%. Uh, you mentioned the getting rattled uh, potentially throughout the game as he continued to get hit. Uh, again, from the SIS data, they had in the first quarter, uh, Morris was on target on eight of his nine pass attempts, and the rest of the game, it was 22 of 37, which was under 60%. And again, that's not just completion percentage that's on target. So again, you can have when you factor in drops and everything else, just Morris did not look comfortable at any point after that first drive. And whether that is strictly a, he was getting hit or he didn't fully trust his receivers. And then he didn't trust his offensive line or he was seeing coverages that he wasn't expecting, whatever the case was, it was clear that the offense just completely self-destructed. It was seemingly the perfect storm of complete crap 
just everything flowed into one another. And ultimately, that's how we get to one of, if not the worst offensive performances in the history of Husky football. Well, and, and we talked about a couple of times the, the struggles with the depleted receiver core. And, and to put a point on it, it's Terrell Bynum, Romo Dunze, Jalen Polk after one play, and Jalen McMillan all, all missing, who are almost by any measure the top four receivers on the depth chart uh, going into the fall and even until basically McMillan got hurt, which is any team is going to show uh, that's going to show, show up in their game planning, their execution. It's going to show up more on a team that's already thin at receiver, losing a whole bunch of returning production there, notably literally half of the receiving core. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we, I mean, we talked in every summer podcast that we did at some point about just how many receivers do we have on scholarship? Like what does this depth chart actually look like? And the conclusion was usually something like, well, somebody could probably get hurt, but you can't really have like a rash of injuries or you're going to end up playing people who don't really belong on the field yet. Uh, and I mean, we saw a ton of st- snaps for Sawyer Racanelli and, and Giles Jackson just came into the program and I think they targeted him eight or nine times, which is probably a lot more than they intended to going into this game. What do you, I mean, what do you do with that going forward? It's not like something that just solves itself. There's a, a much better <laughs> opponent coming up this week, which we'll talk about more later, but just conceptually, how do you deal with not having four out of your, you know, legitimately seven options at wide receiver. Uh, first of all, I mean, this, this just felt like it was the, the Simpsons Homer at the bat episode where uh, every, uh, Mr. Burns hires the entire team of major league baseball players to build a roster. And it's like, okay, well, you know, two or three of them may go out, but what are the odds that like seven or eight or even all nine of them get hurt? And then sure enough, here we are. That was what we were all off season of, okay. Like, you know, we feel pretty good about the top four or five options. So, you know, as long as we only lose one or two, what are the odds we lose four? And then of course, not only do we lose four, but it's also the four that we actually uh, count on the most at this point. I don't know how much trust the, the coaching staff and Dylan Morris can really have in the crew that are out there. Giles Jackson is the only, you know, Chico McClatcher esque smaller guy on the roster And it seems pretty clear that they did not game plan to have him be our outside receiver who's going to go up and win one-on-one balls. I know there was that one throw that Morris kind of threw the back shoulder deep throw to him, which was probably the deepest one he threw of the night where it was like throwing, throwing to your five, nine, uh, 170 pound receiver on the outside, throwing a jump ball out to him. I know there's not a lot of options out there, but that doesn't seem like the one to go with personally. Uh, I, I just don't see how, if we don't get some of those guys back, this isn't going to continue to be a major problem. And I don't know that it's really something that we can scheme around. Luckily, we do go with two tight ends most of the time. So you're talking about two of those guys if we want to. That can be maybe it's just Tosh Davis and Giles Jackson with a little bit of Sarah Racanelli in there to try to manage it. I did find it interesting with the snap counts. And as you said, even though I wasn't watching the game live, I did have to have my laptop hooked up to be able to watch it in the hotel room. So I wasn't really able to keep track uh, during the course as well. But Devin Culp ended up playing 50 of the, I think, 76 total snaps uh, that we had. And it really seems like the, the, the kind of way that the coaching staff decided to go was we're going to play Culp, who is 
probably the closest to a wide receiver tight end hybrid that we have and have him essentially be the Hunter Bryant we've seen in years past where we can still line him up outside occasionally and try to get it done. But Culp has not exactly been the model of reliability over the last couple of years, uh, either in being able to stay on the field or when he gets on the field, uh, being able to catch everything that's thrown to him when he catches the ball and he's in space, he looks pretty good, but uh, that hasn't been something that happens all the time. It really, it just, when you play against a team that has the self-awareness like Montana did to say, Hey, these receivers aren't going to beat us on the outside. Let's go one-on-one there. Let's not, whether or not they're going to load the box per se, put an eight man front. They very clearly were all out aggressive in their defensive fronts and saying, if they run the ball, they're going to run it straight into our guys. And if they don't run the ball, we're going to overload them. And they don't have an answer for that. We're going to pressure Morris and he's going to have to get rid of it before we can get beat on the outside. And it's kind of hard to think that other teams aren't going to be able to replicate that when Montana did it as well as they did. Yeah. And that's, that part was kind of jarring. Like like you you could play like Madden or NCAA football on PlayStation as a 12 year old. And if you can't, if the opponent blitzes you every down, you start throwing screen passes and play action. And there were a couple play action snaps, not particularly effective. I don't think they even attempted a screen in the game. There was very little misdirection. I think there might've been one jet sweep. Uh, And you know, you think back a few years ago under Chris Peterson, not as much as when he was at Boise, but it was kind of known as a like a gadget trick play offense that there was always going to be something in the offense to kind of like jumpstart uh, when things weren't going well. There was there was no creativity, there was no adaptation, and seemingly like frighteningly an inability to diagnose what was going wrong and just do the very basic football one hundred and one things that you do to adapt in those situations i you know we don't have to like i said we don't have to go through every play that went poorly but you know respect to kate otten uh in a terrible game he actually played pretty well uh you know he he controlled what he could control he did his job blocked well when he was blocking and he was our one fairly reliable positive receiving option we didn't really talk a lot about the defense because the offense scored you know zero points in the last 58 minutes of the game or whatever and the defense wasn't great. I think it was passable. That certainly was a defensive performance that should have won the game. You know, you could say there wasn't enough pressure on the quarterback. When they did get pressure, they kind of over-pursued and there were fairly clean lanes for the quarterback to escape. Uh, but even so, I, you know, past stats for Montana were quite bad and their quarterback was super erratic. It was all over the place. Missed some wide open receivers now and then. But, you know, it, it was basically what we expected. Uh Sermon actually looked pretty good inside linebacker with common whipping boy. Trent McDuffie was awesome. Just broke up every pass in the area. Anything else you want to note on the defense before we kind of put a pin in this and talk about something else? Uh, Just wanted to say that I was looking at gameonpaper.com has kind of the advanced box score breakdown and looking at offensive EPA, uh, Washington had negative 20.16, which for comparison's sake, uh, Hawaii in week zero, I watched that game as well and remember thinking, oh my God, Hawaii has no chance to do anything on any of these plays. Uh, Hawaii had negative 19.3 offensive EPA, so somehow we were even worse than that. Uh, Montana, negative 3.91 EPA so uh, on offense. So again, 
The defense held to definitely a well above or sorry, well below average game from the Montana offense. Uh, and as you mentioned, 99% of the time that defense played well enough to win a game. And we just happened to lay the egg of all eggs. So no, I don't, I don't really have anything to say on the defense outside of yes, it would have been nice if we'd gotten a little bit more pressure. It would have been nice if we hadn't dropped, you know, one of the two passes that hit our hands on that first Montana drive. Not that ultimately it turns out that the field goal would have made the difference, but who knows if that changes something somewhere down the line, if that doesn't happen, but I can't, I can't fault the defense at all at any part of this game, considering the position, the offense consistently put them in. Yeah, fair. Yeah. I, I think that's a good summation. Defense didn't, you know, do the uh, 2018 PAC 12 title game thing of just single-handedly winning the game in an inept offensive performance, but it also didn't uh, lose the game by itself. Although, you know, talking through this, as depressing as it is, certainly not the only fan base, certainly not the only Pac-12 fan base that's kind of like looking in the mirror today, this week, and saying like, what the hell did we just see? There's a lot of that in the conference. Uh, But it wasn't all bad. I I think some of this is, we're coming off of a, a... year where we don't really know how heavily to weight the four games or five, six games we, we saw from teams. And, and it makes it very difficult to analyze. And I think a lot of the projections are just much further off than they normally would be at this point in the season. Uh, on the positive side, USC and UCLA both look really good. UCLA got all the ink for beating uh, LSU and this when their sissy blue shirts. But, you know, San Jose State was really good last year and returned their quarterback and USC just pounded them into submission as the traditionally bad USC defense held them seven points. A- anything stand out to you in those two performances? Does that change anything about how you see the Pac-12 South shaping up? Uh, I mean, I, I thought UCLA had a chance to look how they've looked, and it's been incredibly depressing given uh, how close it seemed like we were in second place for Zach Charbonnet when he was coming out of high school. And then uh, also, obviously, our, our full running back room, I understand why we maybe didn't push as hard as we could have for him uh, when he went to UCLA, but he looks so good uh, that that's, that's pretty depressing from our standpoint, but we don't need any more depression from the Washington standpoint. <laughs> We've had enough of that. So let's not focus on that part. I, I mean, UCLA, I good for them. I honestly, um, it, it's nice to have them at least look semi-competent uh, just to add a little bit of variety. Uh, and honestly, I would have been almost a little bit sad if, Chip Kelly just completely shot the bed this year and got fired. And that was the end of it. I, I like, I like having him for a little spice and variety and someone to root against within the conference. Uh, USC. I mean, the defense clearly, I think was the, was the surprise there. The offense is, I mean, with all of USC's skill talent still, even with what they've lost from, from the previous years, fully expected them to, to be ready to go. Uh, the defense is a little bit of surprise. In terms of specifics, again, uh, at a wedding all weekend, I was on a plane for most of Saturday, so did not get a chance to watch either of these games. But so far, UCLA definitely seems like they should be up there for the South. And overall, seems like the South, through one week, much better than the North, where we went 0-6 against the spread. Oregon, uh, one of the 0-6 against the spread team, just sneaked by Fresno. Oregon kind of the things that you would worry about uh, going into the year were the things that didn't look good for them. Anthony Brown was not 
on it at quarterback. I mean, there's definitely a chance we'll see Ty Thompson sooner rather than later. Just the, the playmaking was not there at all, uh, making way more mistakes than the steady hand is supposed to make. And then the secondary was leaving way too much room. It was way too easy for Jake Hayner to carve up what's supposed to be one of the better defenses in the conference. I, it seemed like the defensive front was better when Kayvon Thibodeau was in the game. He left early. Uh, with what looked like an ankle injury. Uh, haven't heard much more about that, but uh, as the game went on, it really seemed like the secondary was not doing what it was supposed to do. And then they did ultimately win. So, you know, power to them. <laughs> Congratulations. The rest of the, like no, Wazoo, let's Oregon not even, State. Let's not Dallas, even Arizona give it congratulations at all. Yeah, let's yeah not, let's that's not fine. That. I mean, the rest of the North was just horrific. And it just seemed to get worse and worse as the day went on. Uh, a friend of mine said something earlier in the day is well before I think it was while uh, Oregon was struggling. It said something about how the PAC 12 looks is in big trouble. And I was like, well, I mean, I'm not surprised that Stanford lost to Kansas state. You know, I, I, I could see them hanging in that game, but not shocking that they kind of laid an egg. And then, you know, all the earlier games were fine. Like they weren't bl- the kind of blowouts that the, the spread anticipated, but they were one-sided, you know, Arizona state, the, the Thursday and Friday games, Utah, Colorado all won handily. Uh, And then as the night went on, it just got worse and worse and worse. We don't have to keep uh, talking through that. We should take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about Michigan, see if we can find any reason to get excited uh, about this Saturday and the game that's now suddenly looking a lot different than we thought it would a week ago. So stick around and we'll be right back. Thanks for sticking with us. We're going to talk a little bit about the Huskies trip to the big house, which we've all had circled in our calendars for a couple of years and suddenly is not nearly as exciting. I have friends who are uh, flying to Ann Arbor or flying to Detroit and driving to Ann Arbor. And I I really don't envy them having spent time and money to fly into (laughs) fly there now, (laughs) setting aside the surging infection rates across the country. Also having to go to watch this team is not that uplifting, but let's talk about Michigan a little bit. They dominated Western Michigan, who has been good uh, in semi-recent history, has not been good since PJ Fleck moved on. They had 335 rushing yards. Michigan did against Central Michigan or Western Michigan, only threw the ball, or Cade McNamara, the starter, only threw the ball 11 times. It was Hassan Haskins, who's the nominal number one running back. Uh, and Blake Corum, who combined to kind of control the game on the ground for the Wolverines. You know, you, you think Michigan, Jim Harbaugh, it brings back memories of what these Stanford UW games have looked like at times where the Stanford uh, jumbo sets just kind of bludgeon our, you know, whatever we want to call it, a 2-4 defense into submission. Is there, do you expect this game when Michigan has the ball to look more like that? I think it probably does, partly by virtue of that uh, Ronnie Bell, who is Michigan's number one receiver and option, is out for the season with a knee injury now, which just gives even further weight to the idea that they're going to try to run the ball uh, again, both because it's been and probably will continue to be this year the weakness of our defense and also seems like it is the strength of their team. Uh, so, I mean, I don't think there's any reason to think that Michigan's not going to go with a heavy dose of their uh, their running back duo and then try to hit some play action shots when uh, the UW defense reacts to it. There's a there's definitely a chance that's going to be successful. I know late in the game, it seemed like uh, Tuli got shaken up a little bit for, for UW and uh, definitely hope that he's able to, to be there because I think he 
has a chance to be the most important player on the defensive side of the field this upcoming week. Uh, if he's able to control the him or any of the other uh, defense tackles are able to really gum up the line of scrimmage that will really help out the defense and hopefully give some more opportunities to the offense. But there's definitely a chance this could look like some of the Stanford games we've seen previously. Cade McNamara really in last season, I mean, he only threw 71 passes and he didn't throw any picks, but he also really didn't make many plays. He averaged just six yards per attempt last year. That was 12.3 yards per attempt against Western Michigan. Again, again, 11 attempts. And I think there was like a 70 something yard touchdown, which definitely bolstered those numbers uh, to Ronnie Bell, who is now out for the season. So I don't know that uh, even though they had three long touchdowns for Michigan against the UW defense that generally is pretty good about containing those kind of long plays, it's going to have to be a little more dink and dunk. And we'll see if, if the defense is able to, to make some plays because we're certainly not expecting the offense to do so. Well, let's talk about that for at least a couple of minutes. You know, I, I think we've talked plenty <laughs> in the last half hour about all the things that Have are we? wrong with the, with the offense. Let's at least look at this from a more hopeful standpoint. What would it, what sure. would each successful offensive performance look like? Like what is the game plan and what looks different in execution? I know we can just say like, Oh, we're blocking now, you know, and that, that does go a long way, but like, what kind of, how would you approach this game from what you know about the Michigan defense and what we know about the personnel we have available offensively? Yeah. Unfortunately, it definitely, we'll see, we'll see over the course of the season, whether it turns out to be the case, but in the last couple of years, the corners have really been the big weakness on Michigan's team. So you would think the, the way to counteract that would be to have Terrell Bynum and Romo Dunze uh, be able to make one-on-one plays on the outside in order to toast them and come up with some big yards after the catch. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't look like that's going to be available, which means we've got to go to a plan B. I, we, when we talked about the offense, we, we didn't spend a ton of time calling for the firing of John Donovan as many uh, corners of Husky Nation have done this week. Uh, and I don't want to get too far into that, but there has to be a more misdirection. There has to be more motion pre-snap. There has to be some creativity in where things are going. We have to see some outside runs. Last week, there were zero runs that were attempted outside the tackles, except for the Giles Jackson fly sweep just jammed everything right down the center every single time. Uh, I can guarantee you if it didn't work against Montana, it's not going to work against Michigan, even if everybody ate their Wheaties in the morning. So uh, we just have to see some amount of creativity. There's got to be something done to scheme up some easy throws, build some confidence. Uh, Kate Otten has to be centrally involved and there has to be good enough pass blocking to be able to get some throws to him. I think we're probably going to see uh, in our the comeback against Utah and some of the other games, uh, some of those seams or those kind of post routes that we ran with Kate Otten uh, trying to get him against a linebacker. That probably is our best chance given where we are at the receiver position. And really it just comes down to everybody playing better, which is, uh, which is a cheat as you, as you noted, but uh, it's kind of hard to, come up with any sense of optimism unless we start with that as point number one and assume that that happens before moving forward to anything strategically. Fair enough. Yeah. I, I think that's accurate that the, the strategy stuff doesn't add up to much if the execution doesn't improve, but you know, it, it kind of is hand in glove. If, if we're not putting players in positions to succeed, then 
<laughs> no amount of execution is really going to make that much of a difference. I think that that pretty much sums it up. I don't have a lot else to say about this Michigan game. Are there any other notes you want to tack on uh, before we move into our uh, <laughs> most positive part of the show, the non-football recommendations? Not particularly, as you kind of mentioned, RIP to everybody out there who, who spent all of the money and time and energy planning this huge trip, expecting this to be a potential coronation. And even if we do pull off the upset, I, I think we got so low this week that it can only, it would only feel so good if, yeah. if we're actually able to do it. So it would, it would be awesome, but uh, I feel for everybody out there who, who decided to go ahead and do that. Yeah. It is one of those things you just, even if we come out of it with a win and you, went into the season saying you're going to go one and one in the first two games. It sounds about right. You know, like that's not hard to yeah. believe. Like it would have hoped for a two and O, but uh, very much, very plausible to go uh, one and one. And it would not feel, I mean, I guess it, it remains to be seen. Like if they show up and they just looks like a totally different team and we run for 300 yards and win, you know, 38 to 10, well, ask me how I feel then. Uh, but yeah. it, it's kind of hard to imagine right now. So let's let's stop talking about football. Let's talk about uh, some recommendations. Uh, do you have any stand-up shows coming up that you want to, uh, <laughs> to plug? Because that's what Gabe usually does here. Otherwise, give us something non-football related that's worth getting into. Uh, yeah, I was I was thinking about this before before I came on and realized that between uh, moving this summer and getting married this summer and planning for the season. I have watched virtually no movies. I have read virtually no books. I only TV shows I have watched in the last like six months uh, are getting caught up on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, watching Loki and watching WandaVision. So uh, I'll, I'll give the plug to Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is back for, for season eight, the final one. I am done with season seven and about to start that season uh, as far as where I am. But otherwise, I, I've, got, I've got just about nothing for you. If you want advice yeah. on how well, to uh, how to put together either a wedding or a home, still probably not the guy to talk to, but I at least have a little bit more practical experience lately. It's actually I, uh, good that you mentioned that. I got something out of it because I didn't know that Brooklyn Nine Nine had started again. So I'll uh, yeah. like find that in the queue on Hulu or whatever. Um, so you mentioned a couple minutes ago. Actually, this this ties back two of the conversations that we had, which is that's that's podcast hosting for you. I planned uh, that. Yeah. yeah, the the weddings uh, and the travels to Ann Arbor. You see, because my cousin used to live in Ann Arbor and got married there a few summers ago. So as I, I was thinking through this for the people who have burned that trip to Ann Arbor, there is some excellent food there. My cousin is kind of a foodie, and so he guided us to these restaurants. Uh, different places around town uh, and so there are a few really good places that we were able to try one he worked at a restaurant called the jolly pumpkin which is kind of a uh, like upscale pub food type place sandwiches and pizzas and things like that but really good they make some of their own beer uh, it's right kind of in the main drag I don't remember what the street is called but it's like right in downtown Ann Arbor really good uh, just the easy lunch or dinner place they do brunches and things like that too definitely worth it he did his uh, wedding reception at a steakhouse called the chop house which is I, I guess supposed to be the best steakhouse in town it's kind of that old school fancy like 
rich mahogany and smells of leather and whatnot but it's also it has a bunch of old michigan memorabilia like old team photos and autographed coaches pictures and stuff so it's kind of fun uh to look through that but the the highlight of this is zingerman's deli which is a classic jewish deli uh just near the campus of university of michigan and it's it's there isn't anything like this in Seattle. Uh, there are some decent delis here, but nothing that compares to it. It's they everything's made there, all, like all cured meats and everything. It, it's I mean this if you went and you were so down about the team and you skipped the game and just like ate three meals at Zingerman's uh, in one day, it would probably not be the worst trip that you've taken. And you wouldn't feel so bad about uh you know you probably if they did end up winning the game, you probably still feel bad about it, but. Odds are they're not, and you'd be better off just like having six Rubens. So that's that's my recommendation. Go to Zingerman's while you're in Ann Arbor if you go there. So the you know hand, small handful of people listening to this, uh, if you if you are listening to it and you're going to Ann Arbor, just take make sure that's one of your meals. It's very very good. I got nothing to add. All right, well let's kill it there. We'll be back next week. Uh, you know, depending on how this Michigan game goes, maybe Gabby will find time to talk to us again next week. Thanks for sitting in, Max. It's a pleasure. Hopefully next week we'll look a little bit better. And in the meantime, let's go, dogs.